So first, before we jump into this message, um, I want to apologize if it's a little bit scattered because I really attempted to, within 40 minutes or less, really bring in the point of the passage itself and not necessarily what one might see in the passage, even in the title, um, let the children come to him, what you might see in your Bible. Um, you'll, you'll hear what the name of the passage is soon, but it's more so tied to what I want you guys to take away from this message um, and what I think God has, not just for us today, but this is just a consistent view um, throughout the Bible itself. So even while we're going to focus in on a particular passage, this, this passage um, is what the entire Bible expresses. Um, and that's what I labored really in my preparation to try to put together for everybody today. Um, so let's pray and then uh, I'll just jump into it. Uh, Lord, thank you. Um, thank you once again for gathering us together um, around your word. Um, first and foremost, around your word, uh, Jesus, um, you saved us. We were all lost. Um, we wanted nothing to do with you, but you've made us alive in Christ. So, God, thank you for sending your son to die for us and giving us the new birth. Um, God, thank you for gathering us again around your word that you have spoken for us, that we may feel our way towards you and find you. And it is by the same word you keep us. Um, God, so I pray that you would use this word today to remind us of a few things as we evangelize and as we walk out the Christian faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is I want to ask a question that I'm pretty confident the answer will be yes. I think most of us have experienced this sort of interaction before. When you're maybe having a conversation, you're talking about a topic and you have someone in front of you who's much older than you, right? And they say something like, young man or young lady, I've been alive a lot longer than you have, right? I've seen a lot more than you have. I've been through things that I hope in this life you will never have to experience. Therefore, I'm in, a, in this position to speak on this issue. I'm qualified for this position. I am where I am because I have put in the work to earn and solidify my spot. You've heard something along those lines before, right? There's two things that come with time and experience, and when you think about it, they're mutually exclusive. Um, time and experience will even make you, it either makes you prideful or it's gonna make you humble. Right. Time and experience will lead you to boast in one of two things. Look at me or look at God. I can tell you for a fact that I have not earned my spot here at Living Christ Church as a deacon. I didn't earn my spot as a, a preacher. I didn't earn my spot as a leader in any way whatsoever. Furthermore, when we're in the kingdom of God and you see me standing among the saints, I will in no way be able to boast and point to myself in pride. All I'll be able to do is point to Jesus in humility. However, there's something about time and experience that will keep you from the kingdom of God. There's something about time and experience that will harden your heart. There's something about time and experience that will build walls and chain you in the bonds of sin and shut out the grace of God. And so some people ask the question, well, what is God looking for? If he's not looking for this resume that shows the world how awesome we are or how much we know or how much it is that you have to offer. 
If the Pharisees, the scribes and the rich young ruler had all of these things that would make you and I pretty impressed. What is it that Jesus is looking for if he's not looking for that? Well, he's looking for one thing and it's one word and that's faith. Luke 18, 8 says, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? And you might say, I have faith, right? How many people have faith, right? You might say, I have faith. But the question is, what kind of faith is Jesus looking for? Will he be looking for the kind of faith that can move mountains? Will he be looking for the kind of faith that can heal a blind man? Will he be looking for this kind of faith that can cast out demons in his name? Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, Jesus is looking for a faith that's far more simple than that. Jesus is looking for a faith that is often overlooked and even dismissed by others. The answer to this question can be found in our passage for today. And Jesus doesn't point to the Mother Teresa's who are pious. Jesus doesn't point to the strong in stature or the mighty in power. And this is a common theme that we see all throughout the Bible, as I mentioned earlier, how God will often use the weak to shame the strong. He didn't choose Israel because of their great number or David based off of some birthright. Even when we consider our savior who wasn't born in a palace, but born in a dirty manger, right? And we know what they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why did God choose that scenario to save us? So likewise, in our passage, Jesus uses the least expected as an example of saving faith. And by doing so, he also exposes the immaturity of the disciples at that time. Luke chapter 18, in some ways, I think, can be summarized as a chapter that focuses on persistence and humility. In other words, dependency as descriptive of saving faith. The title of today's sermon is You Must Be Born Again. So let's turn to the word of God. We're going to be focused on Luke chapter 18 and our passage is found in verses 15 through 17. If you don't mind standing for the reading of the word. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You can be seated. So here's a simple sermon outline for those who are going to be taking notes. And for others, this is going to be a general summary of what we're going to be looking at in each verse. In verse 15, the first point we're going to look at is the rejection. Second point in verse 16 is the invitation. And then finally, in verse 17, we're going to look at the lesson. So the rejection, the invitation and the lesson. And it's my desire today for you to walk away filled with the compassion that Jesus displays for the most vulnerable among us, as well as this humility of faith that Jesus is looking for when he returns so he can bring us home. As we consider the rejection here in verse 15, remember this takes place after this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, Dave preached about it last week. I just want to make a note of this quick because it's relevant in respect to our context as we move into this passage. 
Verse 9 says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Right now, now consider the conclusion in verse 14 in Jesus's rebuke of the Pharisees. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the context of what we're walking into today. And from what I see in the Gospels, this is the characteristic of the Pharisees. They were self-righteous. They were unable to humble themselves. Many of the parables would expose this about them. And it wasn't that they would just be prideful in the presence of other people. We seen in the parable last week that they were also prideful and boastful before God. We see that in verse 11. But what happens next in our passage, Jesus uses as an, as an example to really drive home what he means by those who are humble will be exalted. Let's read verse 15 again. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So Jesus is doing his thing, right? Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of God. He's preaching about salvation through parables. He's healing people from their sicknesses and disease. We've seen this as we, we've been walking through Luke and you would imagine these type of actions would draw a huge crowd. And so people came to Jesus for so many different reasons, right? Some would follow, follow him as a disciple. Others would come believing some kind of a miracle for themselves. As we see in our text, people were even bringing their babies to him. The text says they were even bringing or bringing even infants to him. And so while people were bringing their friends, families coming themselves, they were also bringing their babies. But this word Kai that's translated even in our text doesn't speak to the fact that they were also bringing babies. It speaks to the frequency in which people were coming to Jesus like this was happening and even they were even bringing their babies. And maybe this gives us a little bit of an idea of why the disciples were triggered in this passage later in our verse. Also note Luke's account here is unique in that he is specific in regard to the children that were bought, brought to Jesus. Both Matthew and Mark recorded that children were brought to Jesus. However, Luke, he would go even further to say that the children who was brought to Jesus were babies. And I think this is an important point in our text, being that Jesus is going to use babies as an example of those who are citizens in the kingdom of God. Remember, those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a clue as to how humble one must become in order to be exalted. Even in Matthew and Mark's account, the term that is translated children means young child. But the term here translated as infant in Luke's account can also be found in chapter 2, verse 12 of Luke in regard to our Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Acts 7:19 in regard to the king of Egypt who wanted to kill the babies around the time of Moses's birth. It says this, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. This response from the disciples is very surprising because you would think that they would be encouraging parents to bring their children to Jesus, right? And among the Jews, it was a common practice that parents will bring their kids to the rabbi for a blessing. But I think this is a great example right here in our text. This is a great apologetic point as we defend the faith in response to the skeptic. 
to take them to passages like this because the world is always attempting to explain away the authenticity of the text, right? We always have respect for the person who's authentic, who would expose themselves, right? And be serious before the world who really, really expects perfection from us. Whether the argument consists of contradictions or adding or retracting from what the original authors wrote, take them to these kind of passages. Check this out. While the parents brought their babies to Jesus for him to touch them, the reaction of the disciples really speaks volumes. First and foremost, in respect to their spiritual maturity at this moment, as well as this being a very embarrassing account that the average person might want to omit from the facts. How many times did you hear a story about something that took place, right? And someone conveniently left out the part that would make them guilty or embarrassed. Parents know this. You hear your kids crying and you, Imani, come here, right? And she comes and she says all of this stuff, but she leaves out the part that would expose her as being the cause of the situation. We see this every day as politician A blames politician B for their failures, right? I'm sure you guys can think of a bunch of other areas that this takes place. However, in the Gospels, what we find is sometimes these embarrassing, like autobiographical moments that really, I believe, reveal the authenticity and the reliability of the text. Why would you want this to be in here as something that you did, you hindering children from coming to Jesus? You see, while the disciples walked with Jesus, they were still being sanctified. They didn't always display the empathy or the compassion of Christ. And how do we know that? Because the ending of verse 15 says, and when the disciples saw it, saw what? The parents bringing their babies to Jesus. And what did they do? The disciples rebuked the parents. They didn't tell them to wait. The disciples didn't gently pull them to the side until a certain time. They weren't being discreet about it. They rebuked them, which is a very strong word to reprove, to criticize, to admonish. It expresses the act of reprimanding someone firmly or forcefully. And while we might imagine what the disciples said to them, we don't have to imagine the way in which it was said to them. And soon we'll see in the response of Jesus how out of line the disciples were. And it's also going to take away any benefit of the doubt that you wish to give the disciples in this moment. While the Pharisees will hinder Gentiles, at this moment the disciples hindered parents and by consequence children. And we know what the Lord thinks about us causing little ones to stumble. We know that he cares about the little ones and we should too. But why did this happen if this is a normal practice within the Jewish community for parents to bring their babies for a blessing, right? Multiple times we see this with the disciples, keeping others from annoying Jesus or maybe disturbing Jesus, just as they did here as they rebuked the parents. This wasn't the only time we read about them doing stuff like this in the Gospels. Um, before Jesus fed the 5,000, we read this in Matthew chapter 14. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. In Matthew 15, 21 through 23, we read, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region and was crying. 
Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Even later in this chapter, we see something as well in verses 35 to 43. But if you're taking notes, I'll let you jot that down and read it for yourself. Although the disciples were beginning to recognize the unique nature of the kingdom of God, that Jesus did not come to save them politically, as Abner pointed out a few weeks ago, they failed to observe the scope of the kingdom and even mirror the passion and compassion that Jesus displays time and time again. Not only does the kingdom of God belong to both the Jew and the Gentile, but as we see, even babies, while they cannot fully comprehend the things of God, maybe the way an adult can, it doesn't stop Jesus from blessing them and even using babies as an example of how one must become to enter into his kingdom. Now, I want you to consider for a second, parents, the consequences of hindering your children from coming to Jesus. Like what happens if we allow others to hinder us from bringing our babies to Jesus? I once heard someone say, and I think I mentioned it before, if you don't teach your children the right things about God, everyone else would teach them the wrong things about God. It's up to us. I never thought I would quote Hitler in the sermon, but he said, those who control the mind of the children control the future. So I have to ask parents, are you aware of what's at stake if we allow others to keep our children from coming to Jesus, even as early as an infant? If you fail to take the responsibility of training up your child and even entertaining your child, you know who will? Disney. If you fail to read the Bible with your child, you know who would read to them? The drag queen during story hour. If you don't tell your children about the beauty of marriage and God's desire for men and women to be fruitful and multiply, the teachers in the university will have them believe it's not only women who can have children. And unless you believe so, you're committing some sort of an act of violence against the transgender community and even ignoring their existence. This is what they're teaching in the schools today. When we leave it up to the public school system alone to teach our children, we are hindering them from coming to Jesus. And so I can understand parents that are believers that is all about homeschooling and would never send their kids into public school. When we teach our children that politics and religion should be separate, we are hindering them from making Christ the Lord over their life. Fathers, when we disregard the responsibility of ruling our household well, we are hindering our children from coming to Jesus. Mothers, when you refuse to nurture your child with spiritual milk, making them deficient in the things of God, you are hindering them from coming to Jesus. And why would we even want to let the world hinder us right and us bringing our children our children to jesus on one hand they'll tell us you shouldn't brainwash your kids with religion right on the other hand they'll encourage you to take your unborn child to the slaughter right so you don't have to be a mother or you can be free from fatherhood if you wish for your child to be blessed bring them to jesus and when should you bring them to jesus now Right. When should you buy them their first Bible now? Right. Babies, infants and toddlers, they were all acquainted with the sacred scriptures. This is the charge that we read right after the Shema. Right. Hero Israel, the Lord, your God is one. Right. What happens after that? From verse seven through nine, it says you shall teach them diligently to your children 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We even see this in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. In 2 Timothy, right, we, all, we always read the verse that all scripture is breathed out by God, right? But verses before that, it says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from a child, how from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how did Jesus respond to the disciples for rebuking the parents over bringing their babies to him? Look at verse 16. But Jesus called to them, saying. Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So here Jesus corrects the disciples, right? He then goes on and invites the children to come to him. And then he makes this very polarizing statement about the kingdom of God as it relates to little children. As we consider the invitation here in verse 16, there's a very important aspect of the reaction of Jesus that Luke actually doesn't mention in his account. Now, sure, if we leave it here, we can clearly see that Jesus disagrees with them rebuking the parents. Perhaps you might even imagine the tension that it might have caused in that moment. The fact that Jesus says, no, let them come to me even says enough. I think that maybe that's why Luke didn't mention his emotion during his response to uh, the disciples. However, considering the emotion of Christ in respect to how he felt towards the disciples, it's going to have a dramatic impact on the way that we hear the rest of this verse and even our concluding verse in verse 17. As I've mentioned in the past, when we read the gospel accounts and there's parallel accounts across other gospels, we should read them in harmony. It gives us much clarity. Turn me to Mark chapter 10 and we're going to look at verse 14. This is what Mark says that we don't find in either Matthew or Luke's account of this situation. After the disciples rebuked the parents, this is what we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. The Greek word Mark uses here means to be displeased. Jesus was vexed. To be indignant is to show an outward sign of grief. And it's interesting, this isn't the only moment that Matthew and Luke choose not to share the emotion of Christ. We see this in other passages. One I'll mention quick, you can find in Mark chapter three, verse five. And this often happens as Jesus is responding to some form of an injustice. Jesus would also react in anger in the form of an intense stare when the Pharisees rebuked him for healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. But why is it that the, this closest, the closest followers of Jesus and the Pharisees were hindering the ministry of Jesus? After all this time walking with him, right, they still failed to fully comprehend who Jesus was and what his kingdom was all about. This goes to show that just because someone's an adult does not mean they have an advantage over someone younger than them. And yes, even a child. If you don't believe me, you can ask Reese, right, about what you have experienced in Sunday school with the kids. 
And so the response here in chapter 16 doesn't come off as this Jesus we encounter in Hollywood. I get tired of these movies like where, where they cast Paul and John and Samson and Noah as these mighty men of valor with these boisterous voices. And as Vody Balcom says, this sissified Jesus, right? He's always scrawny. I'm kind of scrawny, but he's always scrawny and he has like this soft, whimpering voice. But no, just as the disciples would rebuke the parents, Jesus said to them with emotion, right? He was indignant. He said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. At least this is how I imagine it based on the text. Like what's wrong with you? Right. As he's looking at the disciples, how how dare you hinder someone to hinder someone is to actively prevent them from doing something like imagine that parents bringing their kids to Jesus and someone actively opposing that action from taking place. And they were bringing their kids to Jesus for a blessing. Is this not the flaw of the Jews who would hinder the Gentiles from even coming into the presence of God? So Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. What a sobering moment for the disciples. Think about that. What a sobering moment for us parents. What a sobering moment for those of us who have been walking with God for the better part of our lives. This is a wake up call for anyone who would attempt to work themselves into the kingdom of God. This was really a sort of a Nicodemus moment for the disciples, if you think about it. While the disciples would overlook babies in this circumstance, Jesus held them in the highest esteem. Not only are children welcomed into his presence, not only are children welcomed into the kingdom of God, but Jesus says to such belongs the kingdom of God. But notice he doesn't say the kingdom of God belongs to children. That's very important. But to such belongs the kingdom of God. So, no, this is not an argument for infant baptism. Right. This is not proof text. This is not a proof text for some kind of an age of accountability. This is not a passage promoting the idea that we are born without sin. However, this is evidence that even an infant can receive the blessings of the Lord. And we know the Lord can reveal himself even to a baby. Didn't we see that with John the Baptist in the womb of his mother? More importantly, the point, the point here is there is something about the character of children that is present in the life of the believer. There is something about the character of children that takes you from an ordinary faith to saving faith. Jesus is appealing to some quality possessed by babies that is essential, essential for entering into his kingdom. However, today, don't we see quite the opposite? Did you say this prayer at any time in your life? Do you attend church? at least as often as you can? Do you watch sermons online? Do you think Jesus is dope? Is he at least your co-pilot? Are you sowing into the kingdom with tithes and offerings as if you're making some kind of a payment plan? Did you share that one post that says, if you want to go to heaven, like, comment, and share or ignore for hell? How do you know the kingdom of God belongs to you? Are you looking for evidence or a claim that some might consider an anointing on your life? Is it marked by riches in this life? Is it the man with the prophetic voice or the woman with the healing hands? Jesus says to such belongs the kingdom of God and he does not point to the strong. Again, he points to the weak. Is this not what we learn all throughout the Bible? Again, this is what Jesus taught in his most popular sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five, at verse two, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger, for they shall thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is this not the message of Jesus in a nutshell? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Can you see how this all comes together? Can you see how it all points even to the character of Jesus all the way down to the incarnation that the eternal God will become a baby? So you have to ask, why does the enemies hate babies so much to the point where slaughtering them in the womb will become women's empowerment? Freedom from fatherhood. Because babies serve as the greatest example, both of the love of God towards us and even an illustration of what it looks like to be in relationship with him. So what's the lesson here? Verse 17. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, whenever Jesus begins a statement with truly, you better pay attention. <laughs> when he begins a statement like this, he often flips the narrative upside down in matters of salvation, his authority and even the source of our works unto the Lord. Over 70 times in the Gospels and only from the lips of Jesus, we actually read the phrase truly, truly or verily, verily. And it literally means amen. It's to confirm what was stated before. And this is why we say amen at the end of our prayers. In this context, Jesus uses it in the final verse to nail down the statement that he makes in verse 16, which is why he goes over it again and even with even more force in verse 17, Jesus concludes this lesson here with a negative statement. He says, whoever does not shall not. Now, this is a moment here that if salvation was of works, right, I think Jesus would have put it in this text here. The context is eternity with God. And Jesus makes an absolute statement. And he began with the word truly an absolute statement because there is no other way. Whoever does not shall not. Also notice along with this absolute statement based in truth, Jesus would include all of mankind. This isn't a statement about the Jews. This isn't about the Gentiles. This isn't about some kind of a collective group of people. Jesus says, whoever, which means each one of us individually must listen up and respond accordingly. You cannot blame your parents, your friend or your pastor. This is your responsibility. You cannot claim ignorance, uncertainty, or your environment. This is your responsibility. You cannot blame church hurt. You can't blame nationalism or conservatism. This is your responsibility. He says, whoever does not shall not. Also, we clearly see, while we clearly see that salvation is of the Lord, it does not mean we deny human responsibility. Look again at verse 17. You must receive the kingdom of God. This is what James is talking about in chapter one, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness, 
right? How can you receive something with something in your hand? Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, again, or humility, the implanted word, which is able to what? Save your souls. In other words, it's not enough to simply know about Jesus. It's not enough to see Jesus as the top most influential person of all time. It's not enough to grow up in a household with parents who love and follow Jesus as Lord. It's not enough to even look at the kingdom and behold its glory. But you must receive the kingdom of God in order to save your soul. And to receive the kingdom of God is to surrender your will to Jesus. It's to bow to Jesus and give him rule over your innermost being, right? He must sit on the throne of your heart. R.C. Sproul wrote, the kingdom of God is an absolute monarchy. God has no external constitution to bind him. He needs no consent from the government to rule over them. He is not limited by referenda or by majority vote. His word is law. His rule is absolutely sovereign, end quote. But the problem is, sadly, since we can't see the kingdom of God, far too often his rule is ignored. But the reality is, and we know it, Jesus is reigning right now in heaven and on earth. And someday soon enough, everyone will acknowledge the fact that Jesus is Lord. But until then, it's up to the church. It's up to us to be a living witness of a kingdom that cannot be seen by those who have not been born again. To live among this world as citizens of another place. But this text says here, if you have not received the kingdom of God, it does not belong to you. Therefore, you shall not enter it. And you might even answer like the rich young ruler did. We're going to see this next week. You might say, I've already done that. And surely the Pharisees and even those who follow Jesus, they felt that they've already received the kingdom of God. Some believe that they were born into it by ethnicity. Others believe that they can work their ways into the kingdom through religion. But Jesus says his kingdom is received. It's not earned. It's not a birthright, but it's something you must receive and you must receive his kingdom as a child. And again, the example, the example he gave is a baby, an infant. I hope you can see by now the gospel significance of this passage. A child is humble and not prideful. Right. A child is completely dependent, not independent. A child is eager to learn. A child is not set in their ways. A child will grow in knowledge and strength. Children have no boast. For children, faith is simple and often free from doubt. A child is in awe of their father and desires to please him. So live in Christ church, does this define your faith? Have you become like a child or do you have a faith that is child or uh, do you have a faith that is childish? Right? Do you have childish faith or childlike faith? This is what Jesus is talking about. Those who humble themselves will be exalted and you must become as humble as a child. So Jesus isn't saying anything new here. Again, we see this time and time again in the scripture. But what he is doing is showing the disciples how much greater God's standard is than theirs, how much greater God's standard is than ours. And that goes for our faith towards God, as well as our compassion for the people, no matter how great or how small they are. On the flip side, for those who do receive the kingdom of God, like a child, they will enter it. First Peter 2, 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants 
Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Malice, deceit, and hypocrisy all come from a prideful heart. These prideful hearts, like the heart of the Pharisee, even the heart that we display at times, keeps us from growth. It blinds us from our flaws and the holiness of God. We have not been born pure or holy, but we must grow up into salvation. That's what sanctification does. Just as a child matures by being fed and nurtured. While Luke's account ends with the lesson, Matthew and Mark's account ends kind of in a way that gives us some closure as to the interaction that the disciples had with the parents. Mark 10, 6, Mark 10 16 says, and he, Jesus, took them, the babies, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. I'm not going to go far into that because it's not our passage, but I want to close with that. Um, I love reading that verse because it really shows us that Jesus doesn't have a problem with being interrupted. Right. He doesn't have a problem with something that many of us would see as a nuisance. He held them in his arms. So just as we read, we must become like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. We also see those who are his are accepted. They will be embraced and blessed. This isn't just something we read about. Right. We have this passage in our Bible for a reason, and it's not because it sounds nice. This is a guarantee. Jesus said, truly, this is so. And then he takes the rejected into his arms, which is even beyond the request, as he demonstrates the fact that the blessings of the kingdom of God are available to anyone who would simply come to him in humility. So as I close, turn with me to John chapter three, right before the most famous verse in our Bible, um, we find Jesus saying something very similar to our passage. While many people have this verse down by memory, might be written in their house or on a bumper sticker of their vehicles. Unfortunately, it's safe to say many folks who speak these words, they have not experienced the new birth. In other words, people who know about God's love for the world, how he sent his son to die for sin, how Jesus rose again to defeat death and sin, they have not been born again. Even in the church, you have people who have not been born of God. I'm not sure about you guys, but has, has anyone ever asked you, are, are you a born again Christian? Like there's two categories, Christians and those who have been born again. But the fact is, you're not a Christian if you have not been born again. So do you see how this ties into our passage already before I even get to it? How can you become like a child unless you have been born again? John chapter three, verses one through eight. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you're and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And so there will be no one in heaven who has not been born of the spirit, who has not been born again. 
the Spirit of God who is able to make us new creations because the Son of God in humility came as a child, was dependent on the Father and the Spirit, grew up in knowledge and wisdom to fulfill the law with perfect righteousness in order that the kingdom of God would be yours to enter. God will become a child to save humanity and we too must become as a child to be saved. This is the gospel, right? That's before we get to for God, God so loved the world, right? that he gave his only son so that whoever, the whosoever are those who take hold by faith, with the faith of the child, who take hold of the kingdom of God. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not perish but have everlasting life. So let me give you a few final thoughts um, as we consider the passage, some points of application. Um, one, always look to Jesus as your example. Um, we know the disciples would later develop a Christ-like compassion and empathy, but we can also see they blew it at times, just like we do, right? And as much as we love Peter, as much as we love John the Baptist, as much as we love Paul, our example for ministry and righteousness must always be Christ alone. Secondly, as we look forward to VBS this week, I want you guys that are here to thank the parents. Let them know how big of a deal it is that they will bring their children to a place where they will meet Jesus. Instead of rebuking the parents and hindering the children from coming to Jesus, honor them and pray for the blessings of God over their life that they will receive Christ and his kingdom rule. And finally, it's never too soon. Today is the day for salvation. Now is the time to come to Jesus. And we know this because the promise that Jesus gave is in the form of a warning. And it's a warning because there are blessings for those who receive it and there's consequences for those who reject it. So if you have not yet become as a child and received Christ, the kingdom of God is not yours to enter. However, if you come to him in the humility of a child, you will be eternally blessed. Amen. Amen. Right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the reminder of what it is that you are looking for. The simplicity of faith, the simplicity of the gospel, um, how it humbles us even in our own ability and our own gifts and talents that we have that we bring to the table to bring you glory, how we often forget and we can even point to ourselves as validation for our ticket into the kingdom. But God, you are looking for those who are humble so, God, I pray that we would live life, a life of humility um, before you and before the world, that the world would know that it's nothing in us, that we can do nothing in and of ourselves, but that we are wholly and completely dependent on you. So, Lord, thank you for coming as a child and modeling for us what it looks like to be dependent and what it looks like to follow you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use this message um, to bless your people. First, in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.